Welcome into this week's edition of AWA Unleashed. We're the self-acclaimed preeminent number one podcast dedicated to telling the stories and reliving the memories of the American Wrestling Association. This is part two of a three-part series reliving some of the, the, the most memorable moments of All-Star Wrestling. And I can't do that without my two tag team partners. A couple guys that know all about the gimmicks, Mick Karch and Joe Chupik. Last week's episode was so well received that I'm glad that we broke this into three because we wanted to do two, but I feel like three is really probably better off and where it should lay when it's all said and done. Absolutely. And like we said last week, we could do 300. You know, there's so many memories of uh, AWA All-Star Wrestling, but, you know, we're we're hitting, uh, you know, 10, 12 over these uh, each of the three episodes and and today is going to be a good one and last week like you said chris so well received and we mm-hmm. love the feedback we love the positive feedback and uh here we go sharing some more memories when well, you brought up that we could do 300 that's just on the old studio matches we haven't even gotten into i'll, I'll say the mid 80s oh yeah and beyond some of them we don't want to remember <coughs> whitewater but, uh, you know, um, we're doing a white watch, whitewater watch along. If you can say that. Oh, man. Just give we're me gonna do it. so I can poke my eyes out. No, it's going to be Patreon. That's going to be our first Patreon thing. We're going to do a whitewater watch along. Yeah, it's thing. Now, Patreon, that's the tequila that I have to drink before we do whitewater, right? No, that, that's, that's Patron. Ah, okay. Well, it's Patreon in Polish. That's what I'm going to do. White water. You might as well pour me a, a you know a shot of battery acid. A white water? Is that what you're saying? You're gonna drink some white water to watch white water. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So before we get to that, you can see the graphic for Seventh Avenue Pizza, one of our fantastic sponsors. If you're a big fan of pizza, and that's why I've got the camera from the neck up because you know body by pizza. That's what we say. Uh, 7thAvenuePizza.com, great, great on the grill. Now that we are smack dab in the middle of grilling season, that's how I have mine. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, Also, if you're looking to rep the AWA Unleashed Army, because that is the gimmick that I'm giving ourselves, and I think it sounds kind of cool, but that's what I'm saying. You can rep the AWA Unleashed Army with the swag from SodaStick, SodaStickCO.com. We've got the black and white AWA Unleashed t-shirt. We've still got the hoodies that are going to be coming back come come fall that you can get your name personalized and they're they're fun. They're great to have. They're really lightweight, but yeah, that's uh, that's what we've got coming up. So thanks to Soda Stick and also thanks to 7th Avenue Pizza. All right, guys. Uh, let's go ahead and get right into it. Uh, part two of this, the first one that I've got here, Mick, tell me about Tiny Mills and Mad Mountain Campbell. All right. Again, you know, there's there's probably a handful of us old timers still out there that uh, go back to the 1960s with the AWA. And this would have been really right after the AWA started 1960, 1961. There's Tiny Mills. And I've referenced him before. Uh, Henry Middlestead was his actual uh, real name. Uh, Tiny Mills, one half of the very first AWA tag team champions along with our good friend Stan Crusher Kowalski. And Tiny was involved in a feud with a man by the name of Man Mountain Campbell. 
And just to put it into context, Man Mountain Campbell was kind of one of these uh, scuffling hillbilly kind of guys. Uh, that was the, the wrestling style. You can see him there barefoot, ready to go. Uh, Man Mountain Campbell, for historical reference, transformed into Luke Brown. But he looks like an action figure, like when they're in the when they're in the packaging. He's like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. The original, the original action figure, uh, Man Mountain Campbell. Uh, he wrestled as Luke Brown, and Luke Brown was a tag team partner of Jake Smith. Uh, they were the Kentuckians, and of course, Jake was the father of uh, Jake the Snake. Roberts Grizzly Smith. Okay, I was gonna I was gonna ask if there was a, a connection yep. there because I heard the the Smith name and that's where I yep. instantly think. Yep, and so so that was uh, Man Mountain Campbell was in the early days and then transformed into Luke Brown. The situation with Tiny Mills, and again we put this in in historical perspective where there weren't a lot of crazy angles on television. Mm -hmm. They would do them periodically in that studio. And this one was kind of bizarre if you, if you really think about it and legitimize it in your head. Man Mountain Campbell is in the ring and he's being interviewed by Marty O'Neill. They used to do, even before they went to the interview backdrop, they did the interviews in the ring. And Marty's standing there and Tiny Mills has the feud with Man Mountain Campbell. As Man Mountain is delivering his promo, Tiny Mills comes into the ring with a hammer and hits Man Mountain Campbell on the back of the head. Uh, it looked pretty damn good. Now, I, I would assume it was probably the television angle, the angle of the camera. Do you feel like probably, they would have used a gimmick hammer, or would that was it a real hammer? It was a hammer. It was a wow. real hammer. I don't even, you know, I don't think it was any kid's hammer. Uh, it, it, I, I'm sure the Tiny knew what he was doing when he... Yeah where he hit man on, but I'll tell you what, and it was, it was, it wasn't just a little tackle wham, hit him over the head with a hammer and man Mountain Campbell hit the deck. And of course the studio audience went absolutely apeshit. But again, remember ladies, this is long before crash TV, long before there were a, a hundred different angles and run-ins and everything else every week. So this was pretty intense and pretty bizarre at the time. Well, was Tiny part of Murder Incorporated yet? He was. Tiny was part of Murder Incorporated, and I believe eventually old Harry Middlestead, Henry Middlestead, became the the sheriff, I believe, in Malacca County. So hmm. uh, certainly he wow. had a, a career after wrestling, uh, brought in as a troubleshooting referee for, uh, for the AWA in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. So, uh, and Manmon Campbell, again, I said his, uh, his claim to fame was Luke Brown, part of the Kentuckians, along with Grizzly Smith. So there's an early one for you, AWA All-Star Wrestling. A lot of these are earlier ones, Nick. The next one I want to bring up, and again, this is uh, uh, before Chris and I's time, but Gene Kaniski and uh, some guy who did okay in his career, uh, Vern Gagne. Gene Kaniski the only man, we've said this so many times, to hold both the AWA and the NWA Singles World Championships. Not simultaneously, but uh, Gene did that. He is the only one. He and Vern Gagne actually were pretty pretty close buddies. 
outside the ring. But in the early 1960s, their feud was extraordinary here in the AWA area. Took it all over the horn, including Metropolitan Stadium and, and places like that. Uh, Big Gene was the real deal. And where there he is. There's old Vernsky, uh, the uh, in one of the incarnations of the AWA uh, championship belt. Here's the angle that they did on television, and I, I've referenced this before, and again, put it in context. You know, this is uh, back in the day, black and white TV. Uh, Vern had his line of vitamin products. One of them was Gerolac, which was kind of a, you know, was a liquid vitamin to go along with his other vitamin supplements. And uh, Vern was doing an in-ring commercial, I believe, for Gerolac with Marty O'Neill, and he's in this the midst of this feud with Gene Kaniski, and Gene comes in the ring and attacks Vern. He hits him from behind, whatever, Vern hits the deck, and despicable. Gene takes the Gerolac bottle, takes a swig of the Gerolac, the liquid vitamin, and spit it all over the prone carcass of Vern Gagne. So, you know, even in this day and age, you know, you you go to the spitting level, you're taking it to, a you know, a, another point. That, this, that, that's, it's personal animosity when you spit on somebody. It's like one of the worst things that you can do. There it is. And, and again, you're going back, you know, 65, 70 years for this. Yeah. And uh, it got over. It got over big time and served to sell tickets. But as a kid, that's one of the things that I remember is, my God, this is this is pretty awful stuff. Well, Big Thunder really laid it into Vern on that one, huh? He, he certainly did. He certainly oh. did. He might have been, that might have been the only bottle of Gerolac that somebody ever used, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, do not want to be the guinea pig for that. No, no. thank you. Next one we've got on the list is um, Man of a Thousand Moves or Holds, Billy Robinson and the legendary Kobayashi. Two of the best of all time, no question right here. Yeah. No question. Chris, you nailed it. And this is when Billy Robinson arrived in the AWA area. This is 1971, I believe. And Kobayashi had already established himself as a real big deal around here. He was managed by Stan Crusher Kowalski. Of course, mm -hmm. they called him the big K at the time. And Kobe had already had title matches with Vern Gagne and so on and so forth. And let's take a look at him. There he is, the late uh, Shozo Kobayashi. Uh, terrific guy outside the ring. This is towards the end of Kobe's run here in the AWA, if I recall. And it was Billy Robinson's debut. I was in the studio. Nobody knew who Billy Robinson was at the time. I mean, if you followed wrestling and the wrestling magazines, then you knew who he was. But he was a newcomer to the AWA, gets into the ring on television to wrestle Kobayashi and beats him. And the, the interesting setup was that Kobe recognized, uh, according to the storyline, who Billy Robinson was. And he's ranting and raving and he's screaming to Stan Kowalski in Japanese. He doesn't want to wrestle this guy. Nobody knew why. But Billy yeah. Robinson defeated Kobayashi and I believe Billy's next victory on TV was over Black Jack Lanza. So it was a hell of a way to get Billy Robinson indoctrinated mm -hmm. into the AWA. Great, great stuff. 
One thing that I'm pretty sure I never heard um, said to Billy Robinson was there's going to be fines and suspensions from uh, uh, the late, great Wally Carbo. But there was there's a situation on All-Star Wrestling where Ivan Putsky was in the interview area. And, um, well, Wally was brought in to translate for uh for marty o'neill to i believe it was, it was marty was it not it was marty yes okay. so marty o'neill calls in wally carbo to help translate what ivan putsky was saying ivan putsky being a pole uh, of course one of my favorites growing up i understood everything that he said but sure. apparently wally didn't but mick take it from there and tell us <laughs> tell us what happened in this interview well, you know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, you know, Wally, of course, uh, of Polish descent himself. So, you know, there, there's certainly, a, you know, lineage there. Uh, Ivan Putsky, who, of course, was uh, Joe Bednarski out of Texas. So he was about as, uh, you know, un, un-English acclimated as, as who knows who. Uh, but Wally was brought in because Marty couldn't quite understand what Ivan was <laughs> trying to grunt and, and get across. And uh, he, uh, Marty O'Neill wanted to know how much <laughs> Ivan Putsky weighed. Well, you know, and, and Ivan didn't understand him. He could have been saying, you know, what do you have for dinner? Or what, do you, what do you watch on television? So they brought in the erstwhile Wally Carble, uh, Mr. Interpreter. And Wally, in his Polish, his best Polish, said to Ivan Putsky, how much do you weigh? Um which Ivan understood. That's, that's the amazing thing. And I don't speak Polish. So I'm guessing if you have a certain inflection, Joe, you're the expert here. If yeah. you say it in a certain way, even if you don't understand the words, you'll understand what's being asked of you. Is that correct? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. No. okay. Google, go to Google Translate. Mm-hmm. Or type in how much you weigh in English, put it over to Polish, and it does not come out how much you weigh. Up. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if Wally thought he was Italian or, or, or German or Polish or Swahili. Um, or, but, but nonetheless, Ivan understood it, and I believe he said something like 300 pounds or 270 or whatever it was. But, that yeah, that was Wally's... Uh, Thank God Wally was there to interpret. Well, we've, we brought it up in previous episodes about um, Wallyisms, and oh. that that fits right in with uh, with Uncle Milty, Wally Carbo. How much do you weigh? I really wish that we had the video, but again, you guys, for those that are wondering why we don't, uh, we don't own the video. Uh, we, we can't legally play it. So if you want, you can go to YouTube. You could probably go to Peacock, although I don't know how much you could find on there, even though WWE owns the rights. Um, but go to YouTube for a lot of this stuff. You could probably find some version of it. But as much as we would love to play the videos legally, we cannot. So I just want to put that out there because you're talking about the, the Wallyisms. It would be great to have a show. We just play the videos and then, but we just, we just can't do it, unfortunately. 
Yeah, and well, the wall, the Wallyisms extend to the stuff that happened off camera as well. The the oh, it, it wasn't it wasn't an act that Wally was doing. That was just Wally, and it extended into the office and into traveling and legendary. Is there is there enough meat on the bone for a, a, a Wallyism show? Oh. My, oh yeah, you got the whole butcher shop. Yeah, <laughs> a little meat on the bone. Um, there, okay. there are some, there are some stories about Wally Carbo, you know, and I've mentioned this before. You know, you, you look at him and you think this guy's a ladies' man. I'm telling you, there was a port in every storm that uh, that Wally would uh, would work his way through. His prowess is legendary, and we'll just leave it at that for now. Well, we'll we'll do that uh, coming up down the road. How about that? Yes, yes. Okay, uh, go ahead. The, the next one, Joe, I feel is one that it resonates with maybe older fans and younger fans as well. And I put myself on the younger end of that spectrum. Yeah, so the next one is Mr. Saito and the Incredible Hulk Hogan. Um Saito came out to present Hogan with this big, huge trophy, and Hogan accepted it. And then that dastardly Japanese wrestler, Masa Saito, decided that, you know, there's something not right here. So he decides to take this trophy and attack Hulk Hogan. Um, it puts a big beat down on Hogan. Of course, that sets up uh, um, the, the, the next angle for Hogan, um, which, by the way, this followed up from Super Sunday. And as a side note, it never really brought me in because I still wanted Nick Bockwinkle and Hulk Hogan, not Mr. Saito and Hulk Hogan. One of the things that happened that didn't really get promoted or stated online is that Hogan actually got pierced a little bit from the broken trophy that he that Saito just used to attack Hulk Hogan. Hogan actually got, shall we say, stabbed. Nothing major, nothing really bad, but he legitimately got hurt in that altercation, shall we say. Well, you know, it's interesting, too. There was there was kind of Saito's foray into the AWA, too, so people had heard of him, but here he's going to present Hulk Hogan. He's going to honor him. Well, of course, the first thing they do is they bow to each other. And when Hogan mm-hmm. leaned forward to bow, he got the salt in the eyes. And then, uh, you know, Saito took that uh, took the trophy and he hit Hogan in the chest as well. And as I recall, they even made some money on that because uh, uh, Hogan was gone for a little while. And there were some T-shirts printed up that said something about one scar, one million outraged fans, or something like that. So they did market it, uh, but that was uh, the again variation on an old old theme: the dastardly Japanese invader yeah. going salt in the eyes of the American. And from a time perspective, that was pre McDonald's. Yes, yes, it was. Whatever, what whatever, whatever you mean by that, uh, you know, I. You know, yeah, you know what I mean. About I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't. Come on, don't, don't tell me inside jokes. Oh, just, quit, quit kayfabing yourself. Hey, just remember, uh, 
Secrets are lies that make baby Jesus cry, okay? Just remember that, you two. We all know what happened when that McDonald's drive through window. Oh, that. Oh, okay. I I, I honestly wasn't getting it. I I wasn't playing stupid. I am legitimately stupid. Yeah. That's why we work so well together. That's right. We... You fit right in the Waukesha McDonald's. Yes, at any rate, yeah, that was that was one of the most famous uh, AWA on-screen altercations because of the time frame and just how big Hulk Hogan was here in the AWA. That it was. That it was. All right, let's go to the uh, let's go to the next one here, guys. Uh, maybe one of our one of our all-time favorites and a close friend of both of yours, Kenny J. Maybe finally getting the rub. Kenny J, going back to the 1960s, already had established the fact that Kenny J did not win uh, very often on television, if ever. Uh, so you're going back, and I want to, I'm going to ballpark this, so don't make comments. You got to be accurate on your time frame. I'm going to say this was probably. 1970, 1969, somewhere in that general vicinity. It's all-star wrestling. And Kenny J was kind of a, a throwaway, almost a standby match because it came at the end of the show. And Kenny was working another enhancement talent by the name of John the Greek. Now, it's not John the Greek Tolos, ladies and gentlemen. Believe me, this was not John Tolos. Uh, this was John the Greek. I didn't have a photo of John the Greek. Uh, he never made any of the AWA yearbooks, so that's the you're, best. You're, you're a hell of an artist. I mean, that, that's, did you draw that from memory? That's I did. I, I drew it from memory, freehand, uh, as they say. Is this not a photo from you and your toga party days back in college, Mick? I don't remember them. But anyway, <laughs> um, John the Greek... We talk about Hank Meadows on the previous show coming in at a buck twenty. John the Greek may it might have come in at a buck twenty-five, maybe a buck thirty. But at any rate, and I forget the finish. I don't know if Kenny rolled him up in a small package or what happened, but Kenny got the dude. There he is, Kenny J. God bless him. And I don't know if Kenny was expecting Marty O'Neill to call him to the interview area. Uh, because it was the last match on the show, I think Kenny thought they were going home, turning out the studio lights. But all of a sudden, Marty says, come on in here. Come on in, Kenny. Jay, you've won a match. Well, as I said to Kennedy, or Kenny, 60 years after the fact, I have no idea what he said when he came out to be interviewed. He was so giddy and so ecstatic. It's like when somebody gets you an extra vodka, Chupik. You know, it, it's like, it's like, there's no such thing as an extra one. It's just the next. The next one. Yeah. Uh, Kenny came into the interview area and it was about as animated as I have ever seen Kenny J. And that includes when he pinned Adrian Adonis. Uh, Kenny is bouncing up and down and he's saying something to the effect of, Marty, think of my vote here. How may I carry? Uh, I assume. That Kenny was saying, this is a great victory. It's my first win on television. I'm not sure. He may have been calling Marty a name. He may have been ordering a pizza. Is your I, dog barking, Mick? The dog, yeah, and, and Kenny sounded a little bit like the dog. Uh, you know, barking there. Even the dog is wound up. 
But that's how excited Kenny J was over his victory over John the Greek. And my friend Jim Pouquet, that's for you, buddy, because you demanded that we talk about Kenny J's victory over John the Greek. Legendary, and again, the footage is gone. It's erased, never to be seen again, which is quite unfortunate. So from a production standpoint, keep in mind that when this happened, you know, Mick, you brought up about Kenny being, it, it appeared that he was surprised that he had to go and, and uh, get interviewed. Well, this was at a time when All-Star Wrestling was live. Yes. Yep. And so thinking about the early 70s, it wasn't, it's not like a, a, a wrestling production today where you've got some, you know, you've got multiple people in the background making sure that timing and everything is set. So this being a live show, my guess is that the finish happened too quick. They had time to fill. And it's like, well, what the heck do we do? Oh, let's bring in Kenny J for his first rambling. Um, and I'm guessing that's what happened. In terms of how Kenny did that, um, first of all, I love Kenny, loved Kenny J. Okay, great guy. Um, that was just sort of Kenny talking in general terms um, a lot of it. Um, uh, nicest guy in the world. The, the eloquence on, uh, on being able to talk on the mic may not have quite been there. Maybe that's why I didn't get the big push. But Kenny was in the spotlight for this match. Well-deserved. I don't remember it. I was too young. I grew up thinking Kenny J just lost every single match. No, he did not. And this was not the only one that he won either. That's correct. And again, you know, maybe for historical reference, just to put Kenny over, let's just let people think it was John the Greek totals. You know, yeah. maybe we don't have to qualify it and say it was, you know, John the Greek who was actually Herb Schwartz from Milwaukee or whatever. Uh, but nonetheless, a feather in the cap of the sidebuster. couple of guys that could do a promo pretty darn well is going to be our next little incident. Again, Mr. Vern Gagne and the dastardly masked man, Dr. X. Mick, you are all too familiar with both gentlemen and what happened on All-Star Wrestling. It was such a great angle, and, and it was the old slow build, which they did to perfection back in the day. It wasn't hot-shotting an angle and going right into a main event on television like it is today. It was a slow burn, slow build. Uh, Dr. X, Dick Beyer, who of course had wrestled as the Destroyer all over the world, was coming into the AWA area, and this is in 1967. I believe it's August of 67. And the, the setup was that you have this masked man sitting in the audience at the TV studios for several weeks, just scouting the wrestlers, in particular Vern Gagne. Now, we've mentioned this on the show before. <clears throat> in the real world, if you're doing a TV show and somebody's sitting there in a mask week after week, you, you escort them from the studio. You don't put the camera on them every week and say, who's this guy? Uh, but nonetheless, that's what they did with Dr. X. Eventually, the payoff came where he got into the ring. He climbed the top rope, 
and jumped on the back of Vern Gagne uh, while Vern was involved in a match, and that was Dr. X, Dick Byers' introduction into the AWA area. That's how he made the splash. And originally, they called him just the Mask Man. Eventually, it transformed into Dr. X. I don't know. I've heard both why he didn't use the Destroyer name here. Uh, I believe it was because he was eventually going to be unmasked somewhere down the road, and he didn't want the Destroyer unmasked, so he went with Dr. X. I don't know if that was his idea, Vern's idea. I'm not sure. But nonetheless, uh, he came out on TV, and he said, you know, do I have your attention now, Vern Gagne? And it was basically that kind of thing. Uh, Dr. X, of course, legendary, worked against the Crusher, Red Bastine, Billy Red Lions, on and on and on for years and years. 1967 to 1970, he was here. He unmasked in St. Paul in 1970, came back a couple of years later as a bonafide babyface. But it was a great angle and a great way to introduce X to the, the TV crowd. And as I mentioned before, one week he couldn't make it. He had a commitment somewhere else. So they put shoulder pads on referee Marty O'Neill or Marty Miller. Put shoulder pads and a suit coat on Marty Miller and a mask. And they had Marty sit in the crowd as the masked man. So the one week that, that Dr. X could not make it in, they found a suitable replacement. And it was referee Marty Miller. And, uh, you know, there's a story about that, too. I uh, I was in the studio, recognized that it was Marty Miller. And being the smart-ass punk kid that I was, I started shouting, Hey, it's Marty Miller! Which did not ingratiate me either to Marty Miller, Vern Gagne, <laughs> Wally Carbo, or anybody else. Uh, I was, uh, they, they didn't boot me out of the studio. But uh, Marty Miller, it took him about 10 years to forgive me for that. But uh, that is the legend of Dr. X in the AWA. Yeah, so how was your relationship with Marty Miller? Like, after, once, how did you guys, how do you broach that subject with him? Like, after, as you get older then? I didn't say anything until I had known Marty for 15, 20 years and was working with him. And I said, hey, Marty, do you remember the time? And he said, was that you? He didn't remember that it was me that had done it. He just he remembered, remembered it had happened? He remembered that it happened, okay. and he said, I would have kicked the living shit out of you a long time ago had I known it was you. But, you know, the angle went over, no glitches, no nothing. The, the microphone didn't pick pick me up saying, hey, it's Marty Miller, and uh, there you have it. Mick, to the best of your knowledge, was do you ever recall the angle as it played out that – Another territory or even the AWA, had that ever been done before, to the best of your knowledge? Right off the top of my head, I don't know. I mean, that's quite – I would assume that something like that had probably been done. It seems like it's kind of tailor-made for wrestling. Mm -hmm. But, again, what I want to emphasize to the modern-day fan is you don't know how good a slow build was. Yeah. When it really meant something and you didn't hot-shot an angle – and boom, put together a tag match for your main event on Monday Night Raw. It was it was suspenseful, and it was a build. Well, uh, what it reminds me of is when Hillbilly Jim with the WWF, they did the slow build. He was this big old country boy in the audience, and 
they did that slow build back when they still did do slow builds. Mm -hmm. yeah. that's, that's a, you know, for, for the modern fan, for myself, and, and the, the, the whole Dr. X angle, I, yes, I was born, but i too young to remember it. Um, so that I'm just equating it, trying to put a little bit of a perspective for some of the newer wrestling fans. And, and, and in my mind, I'm thinking about it is you have this individual and he's just waiting and waiting and waiting and you don't know who is he, what is he going to do? Right. And then he gets involved in Vern Gagne's match and all of a sudden it's, it's like it's got that instant bad guy credibility at that main event level. And all of a sudden it to me. I, and I'm just kind of going through it in my mind. You've got this built-in villain that has got this credibility right away because he's come in and he waited and picked his spot. He picked his spot. And as he said, well, you know, what better way to make an impact than, you know, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to go after the big dog right away. I'm going to go yeah. after Ganya. And that's the way they did it. And Joe, to your point, they did that with uh, mighty Igor they had him sitting in the crowd just as a, you know, a, a fan off the street and his big trench coat and everything else. And then eventually, you know, they brought him into the storyline. So it's been done before, but this was just uh, perfectly done with Vernon X. Um, one other thing about X, quick question, if I'm remembering correctly, wasn't his finishing move the uh, figure four leg lock? It was. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it definitely was. And, uh, you know, that played into a lot of, a lot of storylines as well, you know, if you can break my leg lock and so on and so forth. But uh, well, so legendary guy. Here's the reason that I even brought that up in the first place. And this is how I first even uh, started having memories of Dr. X. I've got uh, one of my older brothers, uh, eight years older than me. So let's see. Let's say it was 1970. I was five years old. He would have been 13. Guess who was on the receiving end of many attempted figure four leg locks? Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. Did he ever oh. get it right? Uh, <laughs> remembering back, oh, yeah. he, whether he got it right or not, I remember that it created mm -hmm. a little bit of pain. Did you reverse oh. it and put your hand? Did you do oh, that? Oh, no, I, I, I kept reaching for the tag to the dog, but the uh, dog wanted nothing. Not mad dog, like my dog. My your little dog. Okay. Time. He wanted okay. nothing to do with my brother. Gotcha. <laughs> sure wasn't you. All right, well, we've got two more here, and, and I know, Joe, they both involve maybe the patriarch of one of the all-time great Minnesota wrestling families. The legendary... Well, I, I think at the time he was still pretty boy Larry Henning. Maybe he was just being introduced as Larry the Axe Henning. Um, but it was Larry Henning and the High Flyers, which back at that time, you never would have thought this situation happened. Um, and uh, if I'm remembering this angle right, um, wasn't this the debut of the High Flyers on All-Star Wrestling, Mick, is this the angle that we're talking about? I, Joe, I don't know if it was the debut, but it, if not, they were pretty, very cool as a tag team. Yeah, yeah. And they were facing, wow, all you can say is going into it, you'd say that they'd be overmatched, but it was the high flyers against a uh, pretty good tag team, Mr. Uh, Slick Nick Bockwinkle and Ray the Crippler Stevens and... They had, uh, God, they had this weasel in their corner by the name of Bobby Heenan. And um, 
tag team match on All-Star Wrestling. And uh, I, I remember the match happening on TV, but I also remember using it in one of the AWA pay-per-views that we had done. And the, the unique thing about it is like the entire two out of three fall match and the whole angle and everything, it was like about a good 25 minutes, which was unheard of for a one-hour All-Star Wrestling show. But the the High Flyers, um, well, they, 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 they took it to Nick and Ray, and uh, Nick and Ray didn't quite like that, and neither did Bobby. And Mick, go ahead and tell us about the finish of that. Well, this is one, you know, that I did not see coming because Larry Hennig had been feuding with the High Flyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty consistently, including his, uh, you know, streaking down the Nickler Mall uh, in his uh, in his spandex as part of the uh, part of the storyline. But Larry, out of nowhere, you, the the Heenan family, Bockwinkle, Stevens, and Heenan are triple teaming the High Flyers, and it's all going to hell in a handbasket. And lo and behold, Larry Hennig comes into the ring, and again, ladies and gentlemen, you got to remember, Larry was such a heel at the time, and the Ganya-Hennig feud had raged for years and years, you know, up to and including Greg's involvement. This is, you know, obviously way pre-Kurt Hennig. And Larry got in and basically cleared the ring of the Heenan family. And uh, he actually wound up picking up Greg Ganya, carrying him out of the ring to save him from further damage. And in Larry's interview, he said... That could have been my son. That could have been my boy out there. You know, this kind of stuff can't can't happen. You know, there's limits. I've done a lot of bad things, but this was way over the top, blah, blah, blah. And from that point on till the end of his career, Larry Hennig was a bona fide, tremendously popular babyface here in the AWA. Great setup, great storyline. Heenan had just come in as the manager for Bockwinkle and Stevens. And, uh, you know, he added fuel to that fire. But when you talk about the, you know, the best of all-star wrestling, man, that's right up there. If I'm not mistaken, um, it was pre-Weasel days. He was still um, Pretty Boy or, uh, no, not Pretty Boy. That was uh, he, Larry. He was actually, he was Gorgeous Bobby. There he was go. Gorgeous Bobby okay. Heenan, and then, uh, you know, that transformed into the brain. He was Pretty Boy Bobby Heenan elsewhere, but not here in the uh, AWA area. You know, what I like about all this and kind of how you're telling me this transpired was that today's heels, it seems like there's one cut, right? You have a certain action if you're a heel. Here, it's like there's an underlying evil with the heel that another one doesn't like. It's almost like there's this undercurrent of dastardliness and a degree and a line that some won't cross, whereas today, it just kind of shifts you know, from episode to episode. And I think that's, you, in order to get somebody like Larry Hedig, and correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, at that point to get somebody like Larry Hedig to be such a baby face, you have to make it so personal and so relatable to right. the fans that they can put themselves in Larry Hedig's shoes and not just believe what he says, but actually like feel the emotion that's coming out of him. That's it. And I think the sun angle, like you said, Chris, you know, the personal aspect of it. Had it been just another guy getting beat up, you know, mm-hmm. on television, Larry Hennig, you know, just sits there and watches it. 
but it becomes personal when it is the son of a wrestler. Larry can relate yeah. to it. And that's been the story for years in wrestling. There's always somebody more hated than you are. You know, you know, no matter how big a villain you are, there's always somebody that the fans hate more that they want you to take care of. And they know you can do it because yeah. you're that big, tough guy. And so we know that Kurt Henning and Larry Henning, our father and son, just wanted to clarify something as well. This one, yes, they are. They are related. Yes, correct. But this, but the the whole <laughs> angle happened before Kurt was even in the business. Kurt was yeah. too young. He was, yeah. you know, maybe in maybe in junior high school. So do you feel like maybe this this might? I'm glad you brought that up, Joe. Do you feel? Do you guys feel like this helped Kurt when he came in? to maybe give him that sympathy already because his dad stood up for him or am I just reaching, am I reaching too deep? Are we not making that connection yet? I, I, I think what it was, fans probably forgot at that point, you know, when Kurt okay. makes his debut at six, seven years down the road, okay. but had Larry Henning not turned babyface, if Larry was still a heel and Kurt debuts in the AWA, he's getting no sympathy. He's a Henning. We hate Larry Henning. So Larry being the babyface for all those years prior, that that certainly played into Kurt getting over right right from the box. Exactly, you hit it right on the head there, Mick. Okay. Well, the, the last one also involves Larry Heading, and, and I have no idea about this one. I'm, I literally, I have no idea. And Mick, this seems to be one that you you are, you're driving the bus with this one. Do you? I mean, do you know about this one, Joe? No, I know who's involved. I know uh, certainly Larry the Axe Henning. And mm -hmm. uh, the other side of this is Dave the Ring Guy. Mick, take it away. Back in the 70s, the AWA had a habit of, uh, you know, if, if a, an established heel or babyface wanted to get into the ring with someone uh, and they were forced to pick a tag team partner, a lot of times they would go outside of wrestlers, uh, you know, like they did, uh, you know, to Paul Persman, for example. When Paul Paul was a wrestler, but when he first got into the business, he was a rookie. And Blackjack Lanza, Nick Bockwinkle, even Larry Hennig would say, all right, if I got to team up with somebody, bring me this guy. Well, Dave the Ringman, Dave Mickelson, that's Dave on the left. And sadly, none of the three are with us anymore. Uh, Dave and, of course, Sherry Martell and Playboy Buddy Rose. Dave had worked for the wrestling office for many, many years, setting up, tearing down the ring. He was a you know handyman, jack of all trades. Well, this goes to the high flyers again. Larry Hennig is forced to take a tag team partner against the high flyers. And Larry really isn't keen on the idea. So... The storyline is that he's going to take this Dave the Ringman, the guy that sets up and tears down the ring, he's going to take him as his tag team partner because he's got to have a partner. Earlier on in the day, Larry had sat in the corner with Dave and just explained what they were going to do, the whole angle, and then I'm going to come, you're going to come out, and blah, blah, blah. Do not let anybody know that we talked about this prior you got to be completely surprised by the fact that I'm going to pick you as a tag team partner. Push comes the shove. Larry's out there. If I have to take a tag team partner, come here, come here, you. And Dave Mickelson just happens to be standing off camera. 
Larry brings him in, and Dave is looking at the camera, you know, like, uh, you know, sad sack. And the first thing Larry says to him is, I don't know this guy from Adam. Have I ever talked to you before? And Dave says, yes, you talked to me this afternoon. That's first thing Dave said. And Marty O'Neill and Larry Hennig look at each other. And... And I remember this distinctly. Larry says, you know, I want to get in the ring with the high flyers so badly, I'll even team up with this idiot who doesn't know where the hell he's at. <laughs> so not only did Dave blow the, the interview and the promo spot, they didn't use him. The match never happened. I, I don't know if they inserted Paul Pershman or somebody else, but Dave lost his spot. And his chance at immortality. Can you imagine that? Three o'clock in the afternoon, Larry says, don't tell anybody about this. And the first thing Dave Mickelson said is, yo, we talked earlier this afternoon. So, and it was like Joe said, it was live television. Yeah, I, I mean, I, could, I, I couldn't even imagine, like, what was Larry's reaction? Was it just, was he pissed? Was he oh, sad? He was, was he doing he was just fuming because once they turn the camera off, I'm looking and Larry pulls Dave into the control room and you can see the control room had a window and Larry's got smoke coming out of his ears and his nose and he's beat red. And that was it. Dave blew his opportunity, but etched in immortality for at least that one line on television. Yes, you talked to me earlier this afternoon. That's Dave Mickelson, Dave the ring man. In hindsight, it was probably best that he wasn't Larry's partner in, in, in a match. With all due respect to Dave, the, 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 the ring Ooh, guy, yeah. um, stick to setting up the rings, Dave. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he wasn't um, wasn't exactly wrestler material, shall we say. No, no he really wasn't. Um, you know, if round is a shape, he was in good shape. Um, yeah, Dave, uh, pizza by, or body by pizza, body by that, pizza. Hmm. That would have been disastrous. That, that would have been real serious. Um, yeah. yeah, I remember Dave, he was still setting up the ring for the AWA when I got there in 85 and, uh, he would come into the office, uh, before he'd need to go do his run of, uh, local towns and so forth. And he, he, he always had a pipe, like to smoke oh. a pipe quite a bit. Um, would always come in and, uh, you know, say hi to me and so forth. And um, I, I remember it was my, uh, my godmother who actually got me, uh, her and my mom got me to be AWA fans, and, and she had this as well. But um, both she and Dave had summer teeth, summer here, summer there. Not saying that, that's not a shot. I'm just saying that that's just, that's how he was, you know, they – Having the pipe in his mouth uh, for all those years um, did some damage to his uh, teeth. Dave had a gap where he, he could have inserted a tailpipe uh, <laughs> in his mouth, let alone a, a, a smoking pipe. God love him. But, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe had he teamed up with Larry, Larry whipped him into shape, could have had a future world heavyweight champion. Look at David Arquette. You know, it, it happens. Apples and oranges. That's like saying you or I could have done something in the ring, Mick. No, it isn't because nobody buys that. 
period. Well, let's let's wrap it up then. On that, uh, this is part two. We got one more. That would make next week part three. Uh, thanks to 7th Avenue Pizza. You want to have a body by day, body by pizza. Uh, go to 7thAvenuePizza.com. You can put it on the grease hill. It's uh, great. You like that? The grill gimmick? The grill cool. gimmick, yeah. The Greasel uh, Gizimic. I believe I said it correctly. You did. Okay. Uh, we've also got uh, Soda Stick. They've got some some swag if you want it. You want the black and white T-shirt. We'll probably have other things. Oh, we got other things that were kind of floating around. Uh, coming up in two weeks, guys, we're going to have Troy Peterson on. And he's going to talk about the Dan Gable Luthez museum in waterloo iowa i don't know if i said it right my wife hates the way that i say waterloo because i somehow put the emphasis on ooh. i i don't know maybe it's uh anyway but i i'm excited to get him on because there's a lot of things that maybe if you haven't heard about it or you're just interested in it it's great time it, as a fan it's something i'm really looking forward to talking to troy about and just kind of what everything is all about and kind of telling him my experience because I could tell him it's the first time, you know, went first time last year. It, it was a lot of fun. So I'm excited to talk to Troy in a couple of weeks. Troy's a hell of a guy, and he's the president of uh, Impact Pro Wrestling yep. uh, down there in Waterloo. They put on a great show. He worked so damn hard, and this is a great event. Very much looking forward to talking with him. I certainly hope I can make this one uh, that weekend. I do have uh, tentatively prior commitments for a production shoot. If that does not transpire, I definitely want this to be my first year uh, for, to, to head down to Waterloo. There you go, Chris. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. I've heard nothing but great things about it and how it is um, really the, the, the true professional wrestling hall of fame. Absolutely it is. You nailed it. Where are we going, you guys? Waterloo! Waterloo! Waterloo!